The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It's 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here are your five at five. 5,000 and beyond the S&P 500, closing above that key mark for the first time ever. And boy, do we have a busy week ahead for earnings and the economy. Merger Monday in the U.S. oil pact. Two rivals looking to close a nearly $50 billion deal as soon as today. Not just the Chiefs, a big win for Paramount Global in Super Bowl 58 in terms of ad dollars and eyeballs. But was it enough to move the needle in the high-stakes bidding war for the media giant? Plus, NATO leaders respond to rhetoric from former President Trump, suggesting he would protect allies who failed to pay their, he would not protect allies who failed to pay their fair share on military spending. And later, a $95 billion defense bill clears a key Senate hurdle with an uncertain future on the chamber floor. This is Monday, February 12th, 2024. You're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Frank Holland this morning. Before we get started, a job well done for the Kansas City Chiefs. Super Bowl champs for the second year in a row, outlasting the San Francisco 49ers. Overtime last night, the final score, 25 to 22. This marks the first back-to-back Super Bowl win for a franchise since the New England Patriots nearly 20 years ago. And boy, was that fun. All right, let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. Stock futures now, as the S&P closed above the 5,000 mark on Friday for the first time ever, capped off a five-week win streak. There you're seeing the S&P 500. Looks like a future change going up here. Let's get a check here on the bond market with the two and the five-year note yields hitting their highest level since mid-December. Okay, oil and gasoline. There's the treasuries right now. Uh, It looks like we're looking at the two-year going down at 4.476% for the yield, and the 10-year is 4.173, also heading lower. Oil with gasoline hitting its highest level since late October. WTI is down half a percent. You've got Brent uh, down 0.6% and Nat Gas down just about a tenth of a percent. Let's get a check on some of the morning's top corporate stories, and Silvana Hanau is here with us. Silvana, good morning. Hey, Contessa, good Monday morning to you. Diamondback Energy and Endeavor Energy Resources are reportedly very close to finalizing a roughly $25 billion stock and cash deal that would create an oil and gas company valued at more than $50 billion. Now, according to reports, the deal could be announced as soon as today. Once confirmed, it would create the largest pure play oil producer in the Permian shale field. Meanwhile, the Senate advancing a stripped-down foreign aid bill in a procedural vote late Sunday in a 67-32 to vote that now heads to the floor for debate. Now, the bill calls for $95 billion in aid to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan, the vote coming one day 
after, after Republicans blocked a wider version of the bill that also including those hotly contested border security measures. And a judge ruling Elon Musk has to testify as part of an SEC probe concerning his 2022 acquisition of Twitter and whether he or anyone else committed securities fraud in the lead up to the $44 billion deal, Contessa. Savannah now. Thank you, Savannah. Investors are awaiting a number of market catalysts this week, including the first CPI report of the year. That happens tomorrow. Economists are expecting inflation to drop to 2.9 percent from 3.4 percent. And that would mark the first read below 3 percent since 2021. Ahead of that, a new poll from the National Association for Business Economics shows 21 percent of those who responded view the Fed's policy stance as too restrictive. That's the most in 13 years. Let's discuss this further with Seema Shaw, chief global strategist at Principal Asset Management. You know, Seema, it's interesting because I was out in Las Vegas uh, covering the Super Bowl and talked to some of the players, one of whom said to me, I think uh, the Fed chairman is just really trying to keep the markets in check. Is the Fed right now trying to keep everyone from pushing too hard for rate cuts sooner than the Fed thinks is possible? So good morning. I think that that is one of the the kind of the key messages that you're hearing from Fed speakers. I think with the market at the end of last year, expecting six to seven rate cuts uh, for this year, that did seem very optimistic. So it makes sense that the, the Fed is, is pushing for that. If they, you know, if the market continues to expect a lot of easing, then that means that you're going to see um, considerable financial conditions easing, which actually increases the risk of inflation pressures picking up again. So I think the communication is a key part of the, the Fed's task. But of course, just like us, they will be watching the data. They are still data dependent, which is why the CPI data this, this week um, continues to be very important. If consumer prices come in uh, where expected, what do you think then will be the reaction from the Fed? I think it's in line with what the Fed is expecting. So it just doesn't change their trajectory. So we've been hearing from them recently that they're thinking more well, three to four cuts this year, so less than what the market is expecting. So if you get a CPI number in line with expectations, then that's just a key message that the Fed can stick to. Um, the market may not necessarily like that at this stage, but we have been seeing that the market is moving closer and closer to the Fed's expectations, which should mean that over the coming weeks and months, that bond volatility, equity market volatility that you have been seeing starts to fade away. All right. Talk to me then a little bit about uh, on the heels of the economic data that we'll get this week. How do you position uh, resources? How do you position investments? How do you take advantage of whatever cash has been sitting maybe in money market funds and make it work for you? So I think this is a really important time for investors to be preparing their portfolios. Uh, we've already seen equities do very, very well in the last few months and even um, in the first few weeks of 2024. That is likely to continue, particularly when you get Fed cuts, which is accompanied by a strong economy or at least a slowing economy and not a recession. That is typically a great time for equities. So we should see investors thinking about where are the valuation opportunities um, thinking about the areas that have been maybe quite unloved last year, so thinking small cap value, um, those are the areas that I think we can potentially do pretty well for this year. So it is important that investors start getting ready um, and focusing on those areas that can typically and historically do well in a Fed cutting cycle. Are you concerned at all about reinflation? I think it is a risk that investors do need to be concerned about, or at least watching quite carefully. Uh, we have already seen that the core goods prices 
have started to show a creeping up of inflation. Um, at the same time, some of the Middle East tensions are showing through in their shipping costs. So there are certainly risks out there. It's actually one of the reasons why we think that portfolios should still have some element of inflation mitigation, whether that's focused on real assets, infrastructure, just to make sure that if there is that risk of inflation reappearing, their portfolios are still protected against that threat. And when you're watching where we are in the earnings season, do you think that the earnings reports are still connected to what you're seeing with equities movement? I think they are, actually. The earnings season has been quite strong. And one of the, the best things that's come out from there is this proof that actually consumer resilience has been maintained. Um, so companies were quite cautious last quarter, but now I think they're feeling reassured that consumers continue to be fairly strong. And this is one of the reasons that you're seeing the equity market continue to perform well. The one bit which doesn't necessarily connect, though, is at the moment the rally continues to be quite narrow. It's still driven by those few um, mega cap technology sect, uh, companies. So as we go through the year, we should see a broadening out of that rally. Um, and maybe those mega cap tech, although they continue to perform well, they probably don't see as strong a performance as they had in 2023. Seema, it's great to talk to you early on this Monday morning. Appreciate your time today. Thanks. A lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word investors need to know today. First, a close look at one of the sectors of the market that's really on a red hot win streak, thanks to one stock in particular. Plus, despite all the headlines about millennials and Gen Z falling financially behind, their cumulative wealth is actually surging. Robert Frank tells us why. And later, the Chiefs may be taking home the Lombardi Trophy for the second year in a row, but there was another big winner in last night's Super Bowl. Paramount Global will likely record viewers and ad dollars move the needle, though, on its high-stakes bidding war and for investors. We have a busy hour ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Taking a look here at U.S. futures, and there you can see the uh, S&P 500 is, well, basically unchanged. You've got the Dow Jones down a little bit and the Nasdaq futures fractionally higher. Let's take a look at how Europe is shaping up as its trading day gets underway. Jamana Versace is in our London newsroom with the early action. Hello, Jamana. Good morning, Contessa. Yes, well, let's start with the handover from Asian markets. Most of them are closed to the Lunar New Year, so no price action out of China or Japan, actually, this week. Um, but you can see the, the other indices that were trading 
are leaning negative. The Australian index down four tenths of a percent, seeing some weakness in healthcare and energy stocks there. Uh, the Nifty, you can see in India, also down about three quarters of a percent. So that sort of set the tone. But over here, you can also, um, most of these indices are actually leaning towards the green. So building on positive gains from last week, similar to what we had out of Wall Street. Uh, the Zetradax is up half a percent. Kekeron's up a similar amount. The peripheries are outperforming. The Spanish index up seven tenths. And then the FTSE MIP also up eight tenths. Namely, because of one stock, and that is the Italian luxury shoemaker Todd's, which has announced that they are looking or planning to delist from the Milan Stock Exchange and go private in a deal with LVMH-backed buyout firm L. Catterton. So on the back of that, Todd's is up 18% in trading today. You can see the huge spike, and that's having an impact on all luxury names this morning. The likes of L'Oreal, Caring, all of those which tend to be domiciled both in Italy and in France are getting a bit of a boost. But in terms of the outlook for the rest of the week, we too are going to be watching out for key macro data. Watch out for UK inflation numbers. That is happening on Wednesday, one day after US inflation numbers. Uh, we'll be paying attention to both of those. Jumana, thank you. Turning back to stateside, and while the tech and industrial sectors are trading at fresh all-time highs, another sector is rocketing higher, IPOs. Check out the space as tracked by the Renaissance IPO ETF, the ticker IPO, up more than 8% last week, trying for its fourth straight positive session in a row. A big part of that move, of course, and one of the largest holdings in the ETF is Arm Holdings. With a 57% gain last week, its best week since its IPO back in September. Is this a short-term blip or is the sector poised for an even bigger breakout? Joining me now is Avery Marquez, Assistant Portfolio Manager at Renaissance Capital and the custodian of the IPO ETF. Avery, great to see you this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, There was a little bit of a dip in January. Are you seeing the turnaround? Uh, I believe that we are. Um, As you mentioned, uh, the IPO ETF had its um, best week of the year to date last week, um, primarily thanks to 2023 IPO Arm, uh, which is one of the top 10 holdings. Um, yeah, when we start to see the IPO ETF, IPO index um, inc- improving, that is a good sign for activity, as we often use that as a uh, benchmark for performance in the IPO sector. I- I'm curious because it-, it seems like we've seen IPOs in a lot of you know consumer names and things like that, but the ARM IPO and the subsequent performance, has it inspired more confidence in coming tech IPOs? I think it is important to note that ARM is a somewhat unique business. Um, So while its recent performance might not be a green light for all tech IPOs, uh, it's certainly a positive sign, uh, maybe for chick makers, especially for those um, also looking to play up an AI angle. Uh, A lot of the reasons why we saw more of a freeze on IPOs last year, they still remain. There's still geopolitical uncertainty. The rates are still high. We haven't seen the Fed cut rates yet. So why is there so much optimism around the IPO uh, front this year? I think the biggest factor here is that investors have now had time to absorb and react to that information. Um, It is not so much of a shock anymore. um, And they are prepared going into this year uh, where we started to see improving returns, uh, settling volatility, as well as movement in that deep backlog of IPO candidates that have been building for the past two years. What's interesting is that people who are invested in 
index funds largely, if you're in the S&P 500, you're not taking advantage of a company like Arm right now. Talk to me a little bit about the ETF and what it offers investors in terms of opportunity. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, the ETF uh, provides a complementary set of indices. Um, We like to say, or we like to say that um, it offers investors access to new stocks, which you most often will not get in major uh, benchmark indices um, for months, maybe years after their IPO. Um, So you're getting access to new technologies, um, fresh names, smaller companies sometimes um, that have the possibility to to, to deliver um, impressive gains. There are so many names out here, uh, Reddit, for instance, and and speculation about whether IPOs are, IPOs are going to happen. Can you give me a sense of the names that are engendering a lot of enthusiasm? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you hit the nail on the head with Reddit. I think that is the big name that everybody is thinking about right now. Um, it's expected in March, um, and it's going to be the real first test this year of appetite for a more traditional tech IPO. Um, we also have our eye on some more tech IPOs like Service Titan and Rubrik, um, as well as, like you mentioned, consumer plays like Panera uh, and Liquid Death. Yeah, and I'm going to be paying close attention to Fanatics, too, and whether that actually goes public. All right, Avery. Avery, nice to see you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Ahead on Worldwide Exchange, millennial wealth is on the rise, at least partially, thanks to the stock market. But our own polling shows a growing number of them are uninvested, or at the very least, not even interested. Our Robert Frank is here digging into the disconnect. You haven't heard about number crispy yet. Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Well, despite all the headlines about millennials and Gen Z falling financially behind, their cumulative wealth actually is surging. Robert Frank joins us now. Why and how, Robert? Well, Contessa, real wealth has increased for all the age groups since 2019. But new research from the Fed shows that millennials and Gen Z have actually seen the fastest growth. Americans under 40 saw their wealth increase by 80 percent since 2019. That compares with a growth rate of just 10% for those 40 to 54 and 30% for those aged over 55. Now, the main reason for the young money boom is stocks. Those under 40 saw the value of their financial assets increase by 50% since 2019. Those over 54 saw only a 20% increase. And it wasn't just that their existing stocks went up in value. Those younger folks also bought more of them. Their share of financial assets that are held in stocks went from 18 to 25 percent. That was the biggest increase of any generation. And they are quickly closing the stock gap with older investors. Their share of assets held in stocks now equal to those aged 40 to 54. Now, the research paper from the Fed saying millennials and Gen Z received large stimulus checks during COVID and many use that money for stocks. The paper saying, quote, this increased exposure to equities, the fastest growing financial asset during this period, enabled younger adults to record higher growth in both financial assets and overall wealth. Now, Contessa, since these folks do tend to favor tech, they've also probably had a good start to 2024. Yeah, we were just showing actually the latest CNBC Generation Labs youth and money poll tracking where young people put their money to work. And 
And here it says only 22% say the stock market, 7% say the bond market, which why young people are really putting their money in a bond market. I, I'm, I'm curious about that. And 17% are in real estate, 53% though, just holding on to cash. What do you make of that? Well, there are two possible explanations. One is that, you know, what that survey looked at was a very particular moment in time right now, given high rates, the high rate of return on just a CD or uh, cash equivalents makes cash fairly attractive. What we were looking at is that broad period from 2019 to the end of 2023. The other issue is that even within Gen Z and millennials, there is a large wealth group. So it could be that when we're looking at total wealth, we're just looking at maybe that top 20 percent of millennials or so who have who have owned and basically benefited from most of the stock market's increase in value since 2019. I would just be so interested in a correlation between investing in stocks and the rise of, say, Robinhood um, that or Acorns, which make investing so much easier and accessible in a in a format that is easy to understand. Robert, it's great to see you. Thank yeah, you. Oh, go ahead. Thank you. Now, I was just going to say that that that's clearly that was clearly part of the rise. And what's encouraging is that we sort of worried that many of these young investors that got into the market during the pandemic would leave. And in fact, this data suggests that as of the end of 2023, a lot of them were still in the market and still benefiting from those gains. It's just fascinating. Robert, thank you. Nice to see you early this morning. Let's get a check on this morning's headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the very latest. Hi, Francis. Hey, Contessa. Good morning to you. We begin with a shooting at one of the country's biggest mega churches. Police say a woman entered Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church in Houston and began shooting a long rifle. Two off-duty officers returned fire and the woman was killed. A five-year-old boy is in critical condition and a man was shot in the leg. Pastor Osteen praised the fast response from law enforcement. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is back in the hospital with what the Pentagon calls an emergent bladder issue. The Pentagon says he has transferred his his duties to his deputy, Kathleen Hicks. The secretary was diagnosed with prostate cancer last year. His doctors say the bladder problem is not expected to interfere with Austin's, quote, excellent prognosis. Donald Trump is under fire for comments he made at a rally in South Carolina. He said that if NATO allies did not pay money that they owe, then he would encourage Russia to do whatever they wanted to do. The NATO secretary general warned that a suggestion like this puts American and European soldiers at risk. The White House condemned the comments as appalling and unhinged. The Trump campaign defended the remark, saying, when you don't pay your defense spending, you can't be surprised that you get more war. For a Monday morning, Contessa, those are your headlines. Send it back to you. Francis, nice to see you. Thank you. Coming up, likely record viewers, but also record wagers on last night's Chiefs-Niners Super Bowl matchup. We have the latest in just a moment. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, you can check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. A quick pre-market mover check. There you're seeing lows higher by one and a third. We'll be right back. Coming into our second half hour here in New York, and we still have a lot ahead on Worldwide Exchange. Here's what's on deck. Stocks doing something for the first time since 1972 as investors await the first inflation report of 2024. Futures fighting for gains. 
Another Super Bowl in the books and why the Chiefs are not the only ones going home winners after last night's overtime win. We take a look at Paramount Global and if likely record viewers and ad dollars move the needle in its high-stakes bidding war and for investors. Plus, why strategies from the great financial crisis may not work this time around for some big banks with even bigger loans coming due. This is Monday, February 12th, 2024, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Contessa Brewer in this morning. For Frank Holland, let's pick up the half hour with a check on U.S. stock futures. The S&P closed, of course, Friday above 5,000 for the first time ever, capped off a five-week win streak. But you're seeing this morning that we're largely flat on futures, um, seeing some movement back and forth on the S&P 500 from negative to positive right now looks like unchanged. Ahead of the open, the S&P 500 has now closed higher for 14 out of the last 15 weeks. And according to the Dow Jones market data, it's the first time that's happened since March of 1972 and only the 13th time in the index's history going back to 1957. Well, over that stretch, which started in late October, the S&P is up more than 22 percent for its strongest 15-week stretch since 2020. Let's take a look at the bond market this morning. With the two- and the five-year note yields hitting their highest level since mid-December, there you're seeing the two-year at 4.474 and the 10-year at 4.17. Oil, gasoline hits its highest level since late October. Lower this morning, though, WTI sinking down by almost a percent. Brent is off by almost a percent. And you have Nat Gas down a third of a percent. Let's get a check on some of the morning's top corporate stories. And Silvana Hanau is here with us. Silvana, good morning. Hey, Contessa, good morning to you. Tesla is temporarily cutting prices on some of its Model Y cars here in the U.S. until the end of the month. Now, the company reducing the price of the rear-wheel drive and long-range versions by $1,000. That's roughly 2%. And the move comes as Tesla is warning of notably lower sales growth this year as it braces for cooling demand and production of its next-generation electric vehicle. Meanwhile, a crowd in San Francisco vandalizing and setting fire to a Waymo self-driving car Saturday night. The witness who shot this video that you're seeing right now told Reuters people were celebrating the Lunar New Year by setting off fireworks. Someone jumped on the hood of the car and broke the windshield while others spray painted graffiti. Waymo says a firework was thrown inside the car, which wasn't transporting any riders. Police haven't said whether any arrests were made. And Amazon has reportedly won the exclusive rights to stream one NFL playoff game next season on Prime Video. The Wall Street Journal says Amazon had been offered a playoff game this season but passed. NBC Universal snagged the rights for Peacock in a deal valued at $110 million. That game drew 23 million viewers, making it the most streamed U.S. event ever. The journal says Amazon had a clause as part of its deal to stream Thursday Night Football, allowing it to claim next year's playoff game, Contessa. All right, Silvana Hanau, nice to see you. Thanks. What a finish to the Super Bowl. Kansas City Chiefs are champs again. The game went to overtime. It's only the second time it's ever happened. After San Francisco kicked a field goal to go up by three, Kansas City drove down the field and Patrick Mahomes found McCole Hardman in the end zone to win it 25-22. 
and the crowd goes wild. The Chiefs win back-to-back titles, the first time that's been done since Tom Brady and the Patriots in 2003 and 2004. Mahomes also won his third Super Bowl MVP, so he's, of course, very valuable. And the world celebrity couple. I can't get through a news report without mentioning Travis and Taylor Swift. They got to celebrate on the field. Fun for them. We're also getting an early look at betting for the Super Bowl. Right before kickoff, some 15,000 bets per second were being made. According to GeoComply, that's a geolocation technology company. It's a record, and the company says Super Bowl weekend volumes increased 22% over last year as more Americans wagered than ever before. A lot of the mature states, like New Jersey, that's been open for 10 years now, we're still seeing growth there. We're also seeing 25% year-on-year growth in just the playoff season alone. One of the biggest challenges we're also seeing is that, like I said, only 50% of Americans actually have access to legal, licensed online sports books. Uh, well, so note, for instance, the Super Bowl teams both come from states without legal sports gambling. This is the action in Kansas City, Missouri. You can see the green versus Kansas City, Kansas, where online gambling is not available nor legal. Overtime and the Chiefs winning, bad for the sports books, by the way, because the majority of bets came in on the Chiefs winning and overs on popular player props. Yet, Fanatics Sportsbook told us after the game it was late. Travis Kelsey scoring a touchdown, but he didn't do it. It was a big positive for the book since a Kelsey anytime touchdown was a popular selection in the same game parlays. On the viewer front, Super Bowl 58 could be a ratings winner for CBS and parent Paramount Global, which also broadcasts the game on Paramount Plus and Nickelodeon. It's also the perfect way to showcase the company, which reportedly is in play with three bidders potentially circling the assets. Let's talk more about that with Robert Fishman, global media and entertainment analyst at Moffitt Nathanson, and Alex Sherman, CNBC.com media and technology reporter. Alex, let me begin with you. What are you learning about viewership for the, uh, the game last night and, and the role that streaming is playing? Well, we'll find out the exact numbers later today. Um, but I think there's an expectation that this is going to be a blowout viewership Super Bowl. Uh, certainly leading into the game, some analysts estimated this would be the highest Super Bowl uh, of all time. So we'll see if that plays out. Uh, there's no question that the matchup, in addition to the Taylor Swift aspect, uh, are all good things for ratings and will be uh, something that Paramount Global can likely champion later today. In terms of streaming, uh, by and large, still, the game uh, is watched on linear TV. In fact, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said uh, just this past uh, week or two that in his entire tenure as commissioner, however long that lasts, there will never be an exclusive streaming Super Bowl, he said, at least under his watch. So in terms of having the bulk of the viewership, on streaming, I think that's probably still many years away. Interesting that you get to that. Robert, I'm going to get to you in one second. But I had the opportunity to sit down with uh, the NFL and talk about this very opportunity. Uh, and let me play that for you, a little bit of that interview. The, the experiment or the engagement, you know, with Peacock, 
um, for the first playoff game or the Thursday night package with Amazon, which has been terrific for the last two years, is really important for us because I think the commissioner used the expression, we need to fish where the fish are. Our demographic of people who are watching on those platforms is about 10 years, 8 to 10 years younger than what we see on broadcast linear television. And now linear broadcast has been amazing for the NFL because you can't compete with reach. It may seem that they don't want to bite off the big dog, in this case, the big networks that still carry the Super Bowl and pay a lot of money for it. But uh, but if you're younger and younger viewers are coming through streaming, Robert, it seems to me like streaming is where the opportunity is. Yeah, good morning. I mean, it, it's clear that streaming is where the growth is going to be. I guess our argument uh, specifically around Paramount and um, some others means that what they're doing is they're taking this best content and putting it over the top. And the problem is that they're offering Paramount Plus at a significant discount to the wholesale rate that they're charging their distributor partners. So what we're worried about is uh, the upcoming negotiations with these distributors. And we've labeled these guys cheaters of the ecosystem. And we're expecting that to play out over the next couple of months, especially ahead of the charter deal. And we've seen the template that they've used against and, Disney. Can you explain that? In what way are they cheaters? Well, essentially putting their content, the best content, as we saw last night, and the NFL and all of the premium content that they have on CBS and other networks over the top on Paramount Plus is essentially offering it to the, the wider public, the, the cord cutters, the cord nevers at a significant discount given all the promotional offers that they give. Alex, what are you seeing? What's your anticipation here for the way uh, the performance on the Super Bowl and the assets that Paramount is bringing to the table, whether it's CBS or, or, or Paramount Plus, the way that that intensifies the speculation over uh, a pair up with another big company? I don't think the performance of the Super Bowl has anything to do with it whatsoever. I mean, CBS only gets the Super Bowl uh, every few years. So the next CBS Super Bowl is 2027, and the one after that's 2031. And however they did in this Super Bowl, that's well, th- that will almost be baked in, to be honest, in terms of uh, you know how valuable the asset is because it'll already be in the rearview mirror. Uh, so that has little to do, I think, with the future of Paramount Global. One interesting thing, though, that maybe does have to do with the direction this company goes, which also has a sports tie-in is this more recent sports JV that Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery, and Fox announced just last week. Paramount Global is not a part of that. And part of the way I interpreted why they weren't part of that was sort of a, a subtle dig at the company, perhaps from the Warner Brothers Discovery camp, mm. which may want to merge with Paramount Global. Just kind of saying, look, we don't think your content is so valuable that you need to be a part of this JV. We feel like Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery, and Fox's sports content is robust enough. It's probably, I don't know, 80% or so of the sports rights available because ESPN is part of that, and ESPN has the bulk of the sports rights, that maybe we can live without CBS, particularly, going back to Robert's point there, that it is available either over the top with the digital antenna for free or on Paramount+, Plus, which isn't all that expensive of an add-on. You can throw it on for about $6.00. You buy with advertising. So if you want to put it together, you don't have to spend that much more money to have a more robust offering. Robert, you recently upgraded Paramount from uh, sell to neutral. You have a $13 price target on it. Tell me where it goes from here. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's the ultimate question. I think it comes back to a lot of the speculation that, that we've been reading about it and, and hearing. Um, so our upgrade was essentially an acknowledgement of this desperation that the company is in. And what they need to do is really just look for some sort of exit here. And clearly there are uh, parties that, that are doing the work right now. Um, it's, we'll see if, what, what valuation they, they end up coming to. But um, from the company's perspective, uh, it, our upgrade was essentially an acknowledgement that the company does have uh, a lot of pressure on it right now, especially because of the linear ecosystem, the lack of advertising, and the potential for cord cutting to accelerate, and the fact that, you know, what we just heard, that they're not in this uh, new sports JV. So lots of new pressure coming um, from all different sides here. And really the, the upgrade was just an acknowledgement that they have to do something and there is underlying value uh, mm -hmm. if they so choose to, to go forward here. Robert, Alex, thank you. Paramount down 40% over the last year, but up in the early trade today. Thank you, gentlemen. Coming up, New York Community Bank Corp has lost more than half its value after commercial real estate losses hit its bottom line. It raises concerns for other regional banks. Now as a wave of commercial loans set to come due, there's another surprise sector that might be in bigger trouble than you think. We'll be right back. We are seeing just fractional movement in the futures this morning. Dow just fractionally red. The Nasdaq just fractionally green. But let's show you the biggest gainers. Here you've got Cadence Design up 1.3%. CrowdStrike up almost a percent. Datadog too. GE Healthcare. And NVIDIA up three quarters of a percentage point. A tsunami may be coming in commercial real estate because of high interest rates combined with distress in certain sectors. But some industry experts say some special strategies could bring a soft landing. Diana Olick joins us this morning to explain. Good morning, Diana. Good morning, Contessa. And one strategy is called extend and pretend. We hear a lot about this. It was used in the aftermath of the great financial crisis. Lenders agreed to keep the loan as is past maturity. It gave borrowers more time to get new tenants and keep up with their payments. And it gave lenders an out so they didn't have to take back the keys and sell the properties at fire sale prices. So will that work this time? Well, I spoke to some analysts at TREP and they say probably not so much. Why? Because after the great financial crisis, there was little to no liquidity in the market. So lenders had no way to resell. Not the case today, TREP says. Sophisticated capital, they say, is available on the sidelines, eagerly awaiting distressed sales opportunities. Now, back during the GFC, when the Fed was aggressively cutting rates to stimulate the economy and CRE transaction activity, that's not the case today. So back then, lenders had incentive to work with borrowers that wanted to keep the properties. Again, not the case today. And finally, back then, extending loans into a lower rate environment led to increasing property values. Again, not the case today, not in a high rate environment. So we already know, looking at sectors, that office is in the biggest trouble. We talk about that all the time. One surprising sector, though, that could see distress in the future Hotels. A lot of CMBS lodging loans are maturing this year and next, over $30 billion worth. And more than a third of those carry interest rates under 5% currently. And while Hotel did have a banner 2023, there's concern now that the consumer is starting to struggle and businesses are starting to cut expenses. So if both leisure and business travel drop this year, 
That'll hit those property owners hard right when they have to refinance into a much higher interest rate environment. Well, Contessa. if offices and, and leisure spending hits hotels, are there other sectors that you're watching for potential distress? Yeah, I mean, look, we're watching all of them, right? But, you know, apartments starting to cool off. They were very hot, but we have a lot of supply coming on the market in, in apartment, and you're starting to see rents cool. And another one that I'm hearing talk about, just talk, is industrial. It was very hot during the pandemic. Obviously, everybody ordering e-commerce. You needed a lot of place to put this stuff, but it started to become kind of overvalued now. So some are talking about industrial going into the future. Is there as much demand? Has it left? off and are the valuations too high? It's interesting in apartments too. One of the challenges that you and I have talked about before is the rising cost of property insurance. And we've already seen some deals being killed on that front. There's questions about whether the distress that, uh, that you've seen in offices starts to bleed over into some of these bigger apartment developments as well. Diana, great to see you. Absolutely. And especially, even though there is very strong demand, again, it's that supply coming on. More than a million units last year and this year. And there just not may not be enough people to eat that up, especially the more expensive Class A apartments. I know you're keeping a close eye on it. Thank you. Ahead, the one word every investor needs to know today. And our next guest has some picks for your portfolio that he feels are very undervalued. We have those names in just a minute. If you haven't already done so, you can follow the podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. And during February, CNBC is celebrating Black Heritage. Here's United Airlines President Bret Hart sharing their story. There is always this sense that you are not complete and your journey is not complete unless you are also giving back and you are helping others accomplish their, their goals in life and that you are making sure that you keep a connection with the community. Um, that is one of the things that I treasure most um, about my journey and that I treasure most about our heritage. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get to your WEX wrap-up. Oil giant Diamondback Energy and giant Endeavor Energy Resources reportedly nearing a $25 billion cash and stock deal to create a combined company worth more than $50 billion. New disclosures from CalPERS, California Public Employees Retirement System, the largest public pension in the U.S., buying more shares of Intel, NVIDIA, and Disney, and trimming a position in Netflix during the fourth quarter. You can see NVIDIA up uh, 0.9% in the early trade. Google says it will spend $27 million to teach people in Europe how to use artificial intelligence through social enterprises, nonprofits, and growth academies with free online training courses. And you've got uh, Google shares lower by 0.2%. Jeff Bezos selling 12 million shares worth of, uh, and it equals $2 billion worth of Amazon stock marking his first sale in more than two years. Amazon says Bezos plans to sell as many as 50 million shares by next year. Amazon shares are up by 0.15% in the early trade. And Elon Musk's Neuralink moving its legal corporate home from Delaware to Nevada after a Delaware judge ruled against his $55 billion Tesla pay package last month. Musk is considering also moving Tesla's corporate registration from Delaware to Texas. Let's get a final check on the markets now. Major indices coming off five street, 
straight weeks of gains. And there you're seeing mostly we're hovering around the unchanged mark. The Dow just lower slightly, NASDAQ up. And joining me now, Jay Hatfield, Infrared Chief Infracap Chief Investment Officer. It is early this morning and the Super Bowl was very late. Jay, give me a sense of we're looking at data coming down. CPI, we've got another batch of earnings this week. What moves the needle for you? Really CPI, PPI, but more importantly, how those feed into core PC. In fact, we're uh, projecting, which is not difficult to do, that core PC will roll down to 2.6 and then 2.3 by the end of March, which sets us up for rate cuts either early May and June. And that's why we have a street high 5,500 target on the S&P. You also have a rather contrarian view on what's happening in Europe. Right. So even if you're afraid the Fed will wait, which they can because we have a very strong economy, the uh, European economy is very weak. They don't have any of the advantages we have. They don't have the energy advantage. They don't have uh, infrastructure spending, a shortage of housing like we do. So they're, uh, Germany's in a recession. They're flat growth. They need to cut. So they will cut in June. That'll pave the way for our Fed to cut. Give me three places where you're looking for equities. We are focused on um, uh, large cap dividend stocks. We really like the investment banks, uh, big M&A. We have merger money Monday again. Uh, and equity offerings, that's great for investment banks or bull market securities. Uh, we also like small caps uh, like Bloomin' Brands and Kilroy. And then preferred stocks, uh, overlooked but on the fixed income side, they tend to outperform in bull markets where rates are coming down. Jay Hatfield, it's great to see you. I, I see here your investment banks, Morgan Stanley and, and Goldman, Goldman Sachs. Sachs yeah. are the classic investment uh, banks. I, I'm just being really specific here right. just in case people are looking for ideas. Jay, right. good to see you on a Monday morning. He stayed up late for the game. Mm-hmm. And is here anyway. That's dedication and commitment. Thank you. Thanks, Appreciate it. And the word of the day, today's word is liquidity. There you go. That's Hatfield's word of the day. I should have gotten that with you, right? There we go. Here's uh, our futures right now. And Squawk Box is up next. I'll see you again here tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well, then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. <laughs> 